Well, it's an honor to be here this morning. It's been a great honor to be here over the weekend, spend some time with many of the men of your church. And I just want to say, you've got some incredible men here. Uh, I had a great time not only speaking to them, but speaking with them on uh, Friday evening and even during the day on Saturday. Um, I do bring greetings from my wife, Dana, and our eight children. Uh, we have uh, twin 17-year-olds, a boy and a girl named Gunnar in Georgia. Fisher is 15. Eden's 15. Peyton is 12. Spencer's nine. Willa is eight. And Brewer is eight. Uh, Brewer and Willa are from China. Uh, Eden and Peyton are from Taiwan. And Spencer is from the Washington, D.C. area. So our breakfast table every morning looks like a meeting of the United Nations. And <clears throat> we sometimes argue like it's the United Nations. My wife uh, will typically ask me when I come back from a weekend like this, uh, she'll ask, was it worth it? Because it, it, does, it does impact our home and it changes things around and disrupts our normal weekend flow. And just to be honest with you, I, I, I can't always say that it was. And I do want you to know that uh, it has been really worth it uh, for, for me to be here. It's been a great time for me and even refreshing for me to just see some godly men who are uh, living their lives out before the Lord and helping to lead this church. I hope you know that your leaders here do care greatly for you. And one of the ways that that is evidenced is when they do take the time to put events together like this weekend. And so I hope you'll express your gratitude to them. I'm going to be dealing with a passage this morning out of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 7. And this is, of course, Peter writing, and he says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, it is fitting, I think, at the end of a men's retreat weekend to sort of finish up in a worship service, but a, a passage that deals with husbands primarily is not just for husbands. Uh, it's for wives who might want to pray for their husbands. It's for young women who are unmarried, who would anticipate being married on how to identify what might be there in the life of a potential good husband. It's for young men who are not married but see themselves as being married one day to even aspire to something that Peter might be saying in his passage. And so this is for everybody. And Peter <clears throat> has some poignant words to say for men. When my 17-year-old daughter was four, uh, we went on our first date. And I had anticipated this for a long time. I was really amped up on being a dad. And I knew that when my daughters got old enough, we were going to, I had all these plans that we were going to do. And so I pulled Georgia aside at four years old. And I said, what do you want to do? We're going on a date. She said, I want to go to Don Pablo's. I want to eat Mexican food. And then I want to go to the mall. And I want to hold hands <clears throat> and walk around the mall and eat ice cream. And I said, okay, I can deliver. I know how to do that. Do that with your mother every Friday night anyway, so <clears throat> I know what to do. So we went to Don Pablo's, and I probably had too high of an expectation of the quality of conversation we were going to have. <laughs> and so we're at Don Pablo's, and we're talking about candy, and 
Barbie and dolls. And then we go to the mall and we're holding hands and eating ice cream. And, but we're still talking about candy and Barbie and dolls. And, and then she looks up to me and she says, dad, guess what? I said, what? Barbie got a new camper. I don't know what. (laughs) And she says this. When I grow up, I'm going to have a husband and I'm going to love him forever. Where did that come from? I mean, we're just talking about candy and Barbie. And what I realized is that little girl at four years old is holding my hand and somehow fast forwarded all the way up to when she thought she was going to be married. Now, keep in mind, this little girl at that point in her life has never been to a wedding. She doesn't know anything about event planning, bridesmaids dresses. She hasn't seen any shows on television about Bridezilla or anything like that. She she knows nothing except apparently whatever feeling she felt for me at that moment. She assumed that that's how she would feel about her husband, and she just went there. Now, i got to tell you, boys don't do that. Boys don't sit around in the mall, walking around the mall, holding their mother's hands, thinking about getting married. Uh, In fact, if you raise the boy right, what he's doing is not thinking about marriage, but thinking of how he can get out of that mall. Uh, That's what the little boy's (laughs) thinking about. So... That's heartwarming, isn't it? She's thinking about getting married. And then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Because there's already a bullseye on her marriage and her home. Do you know why? Because she's growing up in my home. And there's a bullseye on my home and my marriage. There's a bullseye on your home and your marriage and your future marriage and your future home. There's already a bullseye on there because when God tells Satan, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring and you will bruise his heel and he'll crush your head. That's a declaration of war. When you tell somebody, hey, eventually your head's going to get crushed, you're telling them they're going to die. And what happens is, is that Satan knows that somehow through the family, this, this offspring is going to come at some point. And so every, every home and now has a bullseye on it. That's why Satan hates the home. He hates the family. He hates motherhood and fatherhood. And, and God set up a structure for this. What, what would be considered a protective structure, an order to the home, because what, what Peter is doing here in addressing husbands is not new. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God creates Adam. And he creates Adam first. There's an, there's an order even to this, how the order of creation. God creates Adam first. And after he creates Adam, he tells Adam, here are the moral commands of the garden. Don't eat of that tree. Pretty simple, very, very simple life uh, Adam was living at the time. And don't eat of that tree. And Adam is given that command before Eve is created because Adam is going to be responsible to communicate the moral commands of the garden. He's going to be responsible for the moral and spiritual direction of that home. And then God says, it's not good that Adam should be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him, a helper perfectly suited for him, ideally suited for him. Now, what is she supposed to help him do? Well, in Genesis 1, God already said, that they're to, multi- they're to multiply, fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Worshippers of God. And they're supposed to exercise dominion 
and subdue the earth. And so the, the command is, is the same for both. Exercise dominion, subdue the earth. It's just a husband, the, Adam is going to lead out and Eve is going to come alongside him, but it's a mutual purpose. And it's a big one. Exercise dominion, subdue the earth. And before God makes Eve, though, he acknowledges it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. But he gets Adam to do something very interesting in between those time, that time. And he says to Adam, name all, you got to name all the animals. So the animals start parading by Adam. And it's, in my estimation, designed to create an awareness in Adam. Two, two things. Because presumably those animals are coming by two by two, male, female, male, female. And what Adam begins to notice is, I don't have a female corresponding to me. And then what he also has to notice is that there's no one like him. He doesn't have anybody of his same substance. They're all, they're all different from him. And then the Bible says God put Adam to sleep. He takes part of his side, makes Eve, and then he puts her right in front of him. Now, Adam's first words are very important. Anybody's first words are important. We all can't wait for our children to say their first words. And in this case, this is Adam. The first thoughts that come to his mind after seeing the first woman, this is very important. And I want you all to pay attention to what he says. He says this, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know what he's saying? The first thing that he noticed and recognized was that she's equal to me. She's the same as me. And then even, <clears throat> even in the fall, at our Satan comes to Eve. And I believe Satan comes to Eve undermining the authority structure that God has put into place. He comes in the back door. And it's all the more punctuated for me because when they sin and God comes in the garden, God says, who's he looking for? Adam. Adam, where are you? Because he's holding Adam a little more responsible for this family unit. He's, he has a responsibility, much like when I leave the house with my wife and the older kids are in charge. I'm holding them responsible. And one particular kid in, 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 is responsible, that's Gunner. Gunner's the oldest. He's older by eight minutes, but that's older. And so he's the oldest. And we frequently leave the house anytime we want to. You know why? Because we can and uh, we just leave the kids there and the older kids, you that have younger kids, don't wish your life away. But when the older ones can watch the little ones, it is awesome. It is back to when we first got married. We just literally can just leave anytime we want to. And so we do very often. And I'll say to Gunnar, Gunnar, you're in charge. You're responsible for whatever happens in here while we're gone. And we leave. And then we come back and if something has happened, I should say when something has happened, because something always happens, we got two eight-year-olds and a nine-year-old in there. There's something always that happens. And we get in there and I'll say to Gunner, Gunner, what happened? Well, I'm just holding him responsible. Just like God is holding every man responsible for his home in the moral and spiritual direction. And so this is part of the pattern, part of the design, the order, the protective order that God has put into place. And you fast forward all the way to Paul and he writes to the Ephesians and he, he tells the Ephesians, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so what Paul begins to do <clears throat> is say, 
here, here's what this looks like. Yes, men are supposed to lead in their home, but they can't just do it any old way. There's a certain way they ought to do it. And Paul here speaks to the level of care that a man ought to show his wife. It says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, why does he mix that in there? Well, because he's getting into the one flesh relationship. He's saying this isn't just some cute thing that you say at a wedding. They're now one, they're going to be one flesh. It's, it's actually a very real issue so that a husband, when he starts, when he gets married, he cares for his wife as his own flesh because in a real way he is caring for his own flesh as he cares for her. And this is a particular way that a, that a man deals for what man ever hated his own flesh. So yesterday, a hundred men were with me in a retreat center. And we all sat in the same room and ate lunch. And we were in there for about 45 minutes. And not one man, not one man ever came up to me during that time and said, Stinson, you're really an unbelievable, an unbelievable man. You got hungry you came into this room and you had food in front of you and you're eating it. That is amazing. You must be an incredible human being. Nobody said that. You know why? Because of course I did. I get hungry and I eat. That's what Paul is saying. It's second nature. One man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. So I've been injured quite a few times in my life. Broken bones, need stitches. I go to the emergency room and not one time ever has a nurse or a doctor ever come to me and said, we, we don't know what to make of this. You got hurt and you came here and now we're going to fix you up. You're, you're, you must be an incredible human being. No. Why? Because of course I did. I get hungry and I eat. I get hurt and I get it fixed. Because what man ever hated his own flesh? He nourishes it and he cherishes it. He cares for it. And in the same way, just like it's second nature for a man to care for himself, he should now be caring for his wife. Later in Colossians 3, <clears throat> Paul says something else. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. And then later he addresses fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Why would Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have to tell men, don't be harsh with your wives? Well, two reasons. <clears throat> One, because Paul is writing at a time in history to the Colossians. These are actual people he's writing to. And apparently some of the men were being harsh with their wives. And so Paul's addressing something that's happening there. But it's also in the scriptures, which means it's for all people for all time, for all men for all time. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe is anticipating that men throughout all time are going to struggle <clears throat> with their speech. Their wives. Don't, don't, don't treat your wife, I believe he's saying, like one of the boys. I have some friends and we talk really direct to one another because we're guys and we just say what we're thinking and we say it directly and we don't get our feelings hurt. Our wives have agreed with one another that if they talk to each other like, like we men talk to each other, they would never even talk to each other. It's different. I say things to my guy friends that I would never say to my wife, and I'm never say it in the same way. And do you see how Paul is getting into the detail of the care here? He's already, he's meddling in the area of speech. Speech. Simply how you talk. 
lest you think that this is just for a married guy, I think this passage is certainly dealing with married men, but I also would want to say that every man, young man, five-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, every man and every young man, his masculinity and his level of biblical manhood is measured largely by how he cares for the women in his life. So how does a young man talk to his mother? So what he's doing is practicing. He's practicing his care. And what, what, uh, what a dad ought to be doing is reinforcing that, not just so he'll be a good boy, but so that he will begin to learn how to honor women at a young age as he's practicing, because one day he's going to have a wife to honor with his speech. How he talks to his sister, how he talks to the girls in this church, how he talks to the girls at school. It's part of the measure as a parent of whether or not this young man is achieving a level of biblical masculinities. How is he caring? What is his speech like? Because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean that just a husband can't be harsh. Just generally speaking, men don't need to be speaking harshly to women. It's preemptive. It's anticipatory that men will struggle with this. Same thing with, it doesn't say wives don't be harsh with your husbands, although I don't think it's okay for a wife to be harsh with her husband. It doesn't say moms don't provoke your children, although I don't think it's okay for a mom to provoke her children. It's dealing directly with what I think are anticipated challenges that all men are going to be facing. Why? I don't know. It may be in a fallen world that there are thorns and thistles now in, the, in a man's work and there are obstacles, constant obstacles in after dealing with those obstacles all day long, coming home may present a challenge. The way he talks and has to deal with things during his normal day don't translate into proper care for a wife and for his children. And he has to know it and anticipate it. It's the same reason why James says, don't treat the rich better than the poor. Why? Because at the time, people are treating the rich better than the poor. But it's also in the Bible, so it's there for all people for all time. And nobody should be treating the rich better than the poor. What might be the temptation? Because the rich can return the favor. The poor can't. And we might be tempted to treat the poor, the, the poor in a lesser way than we treat the rich because we can get something back from the rich. It's anticipatory that in a fallen world we're going to have that temptation. And that's what I believe Paul is doing here. She's not one of the boys. You can't just treat her like one of the boys. And then Peter, <clears throat> Peter says some of the most unbelievable things here in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, in addition, in addition to speech and care as you care for your own body, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What could he mean by this? Well, I think it's, it's a pretty straightforward, you're just supposed to know your wife. And I think what he's saying is, is that a man who's married should treat his wife uniquely, not generically. Why? Because she's not just anybody's wife. She's your wife. And presumably you met her and liked her and agreed to marry her. And you saw things in each other that were attractive. But you don't know everything about the person when you get married. That's part of the fun of it. That's part of the beauty of it. That's part of the challenge of it, to be honest with you, is you, you, you date, but you don't really get to know everything. That's part of the thrill of the marriage. That's part of the adventure. And a man will spend his lifetime understanding his wife and knowing her and observing how, what things bless her. 
This is far beyond knowing someone's favorite color or their favorite restaurant. This, this has to do with the, maybe some of the purposes in God as to why you're together in the first place. Because I think in addition to a man knowing what blesses his wife and what some of her favorite things might be, he needs to have a running list, at least in his mind, of ways that God is using her in his life to make him more Christ-like. Because I want to ask the question, surely, what did you expect? That you would get married and everybody's just sanctified at the level they need to be saying, no, now God is going to use this primary relationship. You're married now, and this is going to be one of the primary tools that God would use to make you more Christ-like and to make you into who he wants you to be. It's a gift. But what happens, <clears throat> a lot of couples, the things that they thought were cute when they're dating, when they get married, they turn into irritants. And then they turn into irritants and after a while, they just give up and say, well, I can't change him. He's not going to change. And she says, I can't change. You know, we're not going to change. So sometimes couples just say, we're just going to endure these irritants for the rest of our life. I don't think that's how God wants us to view it. I am a very goal-oriented person. I uh, see the char target and I go for it and people might be laying on the side of the road when I get there, but I made it to the goal, right? And that's, that's how I live most of my life. Until I met my wife. My wife is a stop and smell the roses person. She loves the people and the process. And I remember our first vacation. It was about 10 months after we were married. We were in Savannah, Georgia at a restaurant on a Friday night. And I have a paper napkin with a pen and I'm writing down all the things we're going to do on this little vacation in Savannah, Georgia. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing down everything we're going to do. She said, I thought we could just get up in the morning and just see what happens. <laughs> well, that ain't going to happen. What's the matter with you? And uh, she said, what would, be, what would be wrong with that? I said, well, first of all, we'd be out of God's will because I already wrote down everything we're going to do. <laughs> so that's kind of set. I said, we won't get anything done. And she said, I think I'm okay with that. Oh, goodness. I mean, I, I nearly just blacked out. I, I don't know why. I think I've married the wrong woman. I, I, how are we going to live our life together for, in matrimony? We can't, we, we're never going to be able to go on a vacation together. So 20 years later, just a couple of years ago, we went on the greatest vacation of our life to celebrate 20 years of marriage. And you know why it was so great? Because we did nothing. We did nothing. We didn't plan anything. Because you know what I've learned to do? By God's grace, I've learned, actually, there's some enjoyment in stopping to smell the roses every now and then. There are actually people out there involved in the process. And I actually like them, I found out. <laughs> and my wife makes a few more lists than she used to. That's, to, that's what God does. Now, she does the list on used envelopes, which we're still working on it, all right? But <laughs> I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. We have a lot of clean paper in the house, but I just have learned to. Why? Because God brought two people together for a purpose. Not so we would just grind at each other all the time and just resist, you're, you're not like me and you're not like me and so we're just going to, no. Actually, it's probably true that we become, it's God's desire that we become a little more like each other. That's part of the purpose in it. 
But for sure we're to become more Christ-like, and every man ought to know how his wife is being a part of his sanctification, how God is using her. I think every wife ought to know it about her husband. <clears throat> you see, I think, I think a lot of men, when they're trying to care for their wives, they still just think in terms of what they would like. You know, I think I would like candy, so I'm going to bring her candy. My wife doesn't like me to bring home candy because she eats it and she doesn't want to eat it. Right? It's just, it's just some of you are that way. You just think, why, why are you bringing this to me? Try not to eat this much candy. Now you're bringing me candy. I, so I bring flowers. You don't eat those. She likes them. I think a man doesn't get decide, to decide what blesses his wife. It's like somebody trying to decide for you what's your favorite meal. Well, somebody doesn't decide that for you. You decide that. My wife, and anybody that knows me knows I, I, I'm not a good eater. <clears throat> I, I don't eat vegetables. And so let's just say I come home tonight and my wife wants to bless me. And what if she says something like this? Honey, I love you. You work so hard. You're a great dad. You're a great husband. And I want to honor you tonight. And what I've made for you is a vegetable souffle. Now, I'm torn, right? I mean, on one hand, I'm thinking, that's sweet. You thought of me. That's great. But what I would want to say is, you don't even know me. You don't know me. I mean, the weight of my heart is beef, right? I mean, or anything else that had parents. But it's not vegetables. <laughs> and and my, concern, my concern is, is that a lot of men, a lot of women would sit and say, I, my husband's a sweet guy. He's not... He's not He's not a bad guy, but he just doesn't know me. It's just fundamentally part of being a husband. And actually, it's fun to me. It's fun. I know what blesses my wife. I know what she likes. I bought my wife one time for Christmas a pinball machine, like a real pinball machine from an arcade. And all my buddies said, oh, you bought that for yourself. And you're, No, I bought it for her. And they said, well, my wife would never like that. I said, that's why I didn't buy it for your wife. <laughs> bought it for mine. My wife cried when she saw it. You know why? Because I know her. I know what blesses her. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now what does this mean? Let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It does not mean weaker intellectually. It does not mean weaker spiritually. I think this is just a straightforward reading of the text. Weaker physically, showing honor to the woman as a physically weaker vessel. Because typically speaking, men are just physically stronger than women. Just generally speaking across the board. Part of it is just chemical makeup. And I think what Paul, or what Peter is prohibiting here, is abuse. I think what he's prohibiting is, you do not touch a woman with the intent to harm it's just right there, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. If you, if you attempt to harm and use your physical strength, your superior physical strength to harm, then you are dishonoring her as the weaker vessel, as you would with anybody who's a weaker vessel. <clears throat> but I, I think it's at least doing that, but I think it's more than that, because I think what it means is you can show dishonor to a woman as the weaker vessel without touching her at all because you can just use your physical presence to intimidate. There have been a few times in my life when I've had to step up to another man because there was something really bad that was getting ready to happen and I thought what I had to do was 
headed off. And what I did is I stepped up and I got right into his face and I said, hey, don't do that again. Do you understand me? Now, I didn't touch him, but what am I trying to communicate? I'm trying to communicate, if I take one more step, you're going to be where you are. And you're not going to be where you are. And I've talked to men before, and they'll say, well, I didn't touch her. Oh, I believe it, you didn't touch her. But you sure stepped up to her and used your physical presence to intimidate her, and you made her think you'd be willing to if it got bad enough. That's dishonoring her. As a weaker vessel, you do not use, you definitely don't lay hands on her, but you don't even use your physical presence to intimidate. It's about care. Do you see how God is using all of these different passages? It's about care, care, care. We have two kinds of plates in our house. We have these plastic plates that come from Walmart. They're about 10 cents a piece. And we have a stack of them that high. And we do not care what happens to them. They're very durable. But they're cheap. And so we treat them that way. We, I will clean off my place and the boys and I, when we're trying to clean up the kitchen, we'll, we'll take one of those plates and fling it across the kitchen and just try to land it in the sink. And if it misses, we don't care because it just doesn't hurt the plate. I might be on the back deck and the pond is out there and the boys might be playing by the pond and I might just fling one off the deck and try to hit one of the boys with one of those plates. And it might go in the pond and lose the plate. I don't care what happens to the plate. I don't care what happens to the boys. Uh, <laughs> But it's just, we don't care about these plates. We treat them like they are, cheap but durable. Now we have some other kinds of plates in the house. And you know what kind they are because nobody wants to touch them. We we don't even want to eat on them. They're fine china handed down from great-great-grandmothers. They've got little cracks in them. We barely use them. When we use them, we lay them all out there, warn everybody. You can't even enjoy the meal you're eating on it because something bad could happen to it. And boy, we don't treat these plates like the other plates. We carry them up to the, to the sink. We clear them off. We wash them by hand. We dry them by hand because you don't put them in the dishwasher. And then you carry them like the Holy Grail back over to the china cabinet and you put it in there. And then you tell the kids, don't touch them. Don't you even look at them. I better not catch you in there. You're going to get those one day. They don't want those one day. I don't want them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want the responsibility of it. You just put them in a vault and uh, a museum. But you see, they're more fragile, they're weaker, but they're more valuable, which means we give them more care, not less care. We treat them with greater care, greater respect, greater honor, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It is not a statement of inferiority. It is a statement of great value and care that is required of a husband. I just still want to say to you younger men in here, don't, don't check out on me here because how you care how you care for your sister and your mother and how, how you, you care for the women in this church and the women at school and wherever else they, they are in your life. I have my four-year-old daughter that I mentioned earlier, she's 17. She's closer than ever before to potentially being married. And we're going to try to evaluate this potential young man that is going to be coming into our life. And how will we do that? We're going to be asking questions like this before he's ever even a husband. We're going to ask, how does he, how does he treat the other girls at church? How does he treat your sisters? We have other girls in our family. How, do, how does that young man treat them? I want to see him interact with his mother. I want to see how he treats his mother. I want to see how he treats all the women in his life. 
That's what I keep telling our daughters. You know, look, you don't have to marry somebody that's just like me, but just marry somebody that me and the boys like, at least. I mean, you can ruin every Thanksgiving from here on out. I mean, just marry somebody we kind of like. But that's how we're going to measure. That's how you should be looking around. How, how do the young men, how, observe, you older men, you should feel free to tell some of these younger men, hey, uh-uh, don't talk to her like that. Don't talk to her like that. I've told, I've told kids in the grocery store that I don't even know. I'm not kidding. I don't even know. I don't even, I've never seen these people in my life. It just gets all over me. I just say, hey, don't talk to your mother like that. I've never one time had a mom say, don't you tell him that. She says, you see there? You see there? Right? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Isn't it, isn't it crazy in a fallen world what has to take place and what we have to be reminded of? You know what Peter's doing here? He's reminding husbands she's equal to you. She's equal to you. In a fallen world, it is so easy for anybody who's leading anything to start to believe falsely that the people that they're leading, the reason why they're leading those people is because they're such a great leader and they're such a good person and they, they then deceive themselves and believe they're better than the people that they're leading. And what Peter is doing here is just reminding all of us men, this is an assignment based on your gender. It's not because you're so, so awesome. It's not because you, you're such an incredible leader. Some of you are naturally better at it than others, but you don't have this assignment because of certain qualities you possess that are better than hers or better than anybody else's. It's an assignment. It's an order. It's just a sheer order that God has set into place. And in having this responsibility, Peter is just warding off the temptation to believe that somehow you deserve it, somehow you've earned it, somehow there's certain better qualities in you than in your wife. It's not true. <clears throat> so that your prayers may not be hindered. For me, this is one of the most unbelievable acts of discipline in the Bible. Because not only what the act of discipline is, but what it's for. Because what God is saying through Peter is that if a man does not live with his wife in an understanding way, does not show honor to her as a weaker vessel, does not treat her as a joint heir of the grace of life, God is going to not hear your prayer. Now, some have said to me in the past, well, I don't think men pray very much anyway, so it doesn't even bother most men. Well, I hope that's not true for you, and I hope it's not true for me. Other men just think, well, all right, I'm not going to get the boat that I've been praying for, the big screen TV, the promotion, the car, whatever it is, just some possessions. I'm not going to get those, and I'm okay to live without them. It just, just doesn't feel like an act of discipline to me. But here's what it means. It, it probably does mean you're not going to get certain things that you've been praying for, but it's way more than that. It's an act of discipline to where God turns a deaf ear. And if God turns a deaf ear toward you, there's a removal of a certain level of his grace in your life, and it will confound you. It will disrupt your soul. Your life will seem confounded. It won't make sense. And you'll experience abnormal levels of frustration and you won't understand why unless you come to here in this passage.
And so it's not you were a believer and now you're not a believer. It's an act of discipline for the believer. And it's, a, it's, it's God saying, I will not hear you. And I talk to men all the time who are frustrated. They're frustrated and they, they think they know why. Because they just identify something in their life that they don't like. I don't, this, this job I have, I need a different job. I need a new car. Those students, I talk to young men all the time on the cable. It's that mean old professor. It's that UPS. I'm working the night shift at UPS. I'm just tired of it. If I had a different job, if I could work here during the day, and if I could do this and that and get paid this or that. Sometimes people think it's just, it's, you know, we're just having a little financial challenge. All those things may be true, but the fact of the matter is what happens with most men that I talk to, it's really not about their employer. It's really not about their kids. It's really not about the car they're driving. It is about their lack of care for their wives. And what they don't realize is what they're experiencing is an act of discipline by the Lord confounding their life because of the lack of care. When I talk to young men, and they bring me their problem, I'll say, hey, what's your wife's favorite color? I don't know, red. What does that have to do with anything? What's her favorite restaurant? Well, burger King. Oh, 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 it's not Burger King. All right, we might be getting to the heart of the problem here. <laughs> what am I asking? I start to ask questions of his care. I'm just going right through this passage. And then I'll hit Ephesians 5 and I'll hit Colossians 3. I'm just going through these passages saying, what is the level of care for your wife? And if I begin to dig around and root around and discern, he isn't showing the level of care that God would require of his wife. That's where we go because that's the source of it usually. Because anybody can endure a difficult job, a difficult boss, a hard professor. It always shows up here where God demonstrates his care for the family, his care for women I mean, imagine the only worse discipline is just strike them dead. And so some of you men here, some of you men here, some of you probably just need to bring some flowers home a little more often. Some of you probably do need a little more soul searching and just, it's not a bad exercise to sit down with your wife and say, what does bless you? What, what would really honor you? What would be something that you would just, it would bring you joy that I would do regularly when I come home at the end of a day? You know what my wife likes? I mentioned she likes flowers. She likes me to kiss her and address her before any of the other children. That's just, that blesses her. I, and that, by the way, that's free. I don't even have to stop at the store and get that. Okay, I'm carrying that with me all the time. So I know that blesses her and I do it. Why wouldn't I do it? And some of you probably need to have a heart-to-heart conversation with some of your pastors here, one of your pastors, an older, wiser man that you trust. Because sometimes a man can just get too deep and it's hard for him to see. He doesn't have eyes to see. And it requires other people to come along that have a better vision, a better understanding, a better line of sight on the situation. And there's no shame in that. There's no harm in that. That's the body of Christ. That's how it's designed. That you would go to someone and say, man, I think I'm too deep in the weeds here. I I can't see my way out. I know there's something I need to change, but I can't see my way out. 
Because this isn't just a premature Father's Day message. This is for the whole body of Christ. And I want to say a word of encouragement at the end here because I don't want anybody to think this is just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Work harder, make more lists, be better. This is about the grace and mercy of Christ found in the gospel. So God wants good for you and not evil as evidenced in the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and be raised again for your salvation. And this is where we just fling ourselves to the cross, at the ground of the cross, to ask for the mercy of God and the strength that God gives in the Holy Spirit once we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He gives the Holy Spirit so that we're able to do the things that God requires of us in the first place. And so there's grace for you. There's mercy for you. There is freedom in Christ for you to be the men that God has called you to be, to be the women that God has called you to be, to be the young men and the young women that God has called you to be. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that every young man, young woman, grown man, grown woman, married or unmarried would even now just continue to see the the goodness of God's design, your design, Lord, and the goodness of how you arranged things to be between husbands and wives and the great love that you've demonstrated to women as they they are married to these men and men who are going to care for them. I thank you for the clarity of your word and the clear instruction given today. And I pray that you would give us all courage, even as the Apostle Paul prayed for courage. You would give us all courage and that as the disciples said to you, your son, the Lord Jesus, Lord, we have faith, increase our faith. We pray that even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.